We are starting a new series here this morning about union with Christ, communion with God. It's been a long time coming, quite honestly, as we've been thinking about talking about this issue of communing with God. It, it really resonates with me as I read passages like 1 Peter chapter 1, that we are partakers of the divine nature. Or when we read John 14, that Jesus tells us that he will come to us and make his home with us. We recognize there's something deep and real and dare I use the word existential, about, about the resonance of our spirit with God's spirit as he resides in us. And we want to kind of just unpack that this summer to kind of just say, what are we talking about when we're talking about this concept of communing with the God who created the universe? See, with that in mind, we, we've kind of split this series into three parts. And first, we're going to talk, uh, this week we'll do just a general introduction about what it means to be near to God and the goodness of being near to God. Next week, we'll talk about obstacles to having union with God. And then the second part, we'll, we'll take three or four weeks, and we're going to talk about our union with Christ and how it relates with our communion with the Godhead that Jesus becomes the avenue by which we know the Father and by which we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're just going to kind of unpack what that means. And then finally, we'll, we'll highlight, albeit briefly, just some of the patterns and the um, implications for what that communion with God might look like in, in our regular formative dis disciplines. What, what is a practicing Christian look like who, who takes seriously their communion with God. And we'll talk about things like study and prayer and fasting and Sabbath and all of those things and how they form us spiritually so that we might uh, put on patterns about communing with God. But today is really meant to be an introduction to this concept of communion with God. And I want to put a, a a Piper quote in front of you here this morning from John Piper. He says this, communion refers to God's communication and, our pre and presentation of himself to us together with our proper response to him with joy. Now, let's not conf confuse union with Christ, which is something that happens despite ourselves, is fully by grace, is fully by the mercy of God. It would be called monergistic. It is solely of God alone. Whereas our communion with God, our fellowship with God, um, is a two-way street, as Piper kind of highlights here. It's, it's God's communication and presentation of himself, and it's our proper response through the disciplines, through worship, through other things, that we would honor God's goodness to us. We sat down in November as, as elders, and Brian and Ryan and myself, First of all, it's the coolest thing that we have elders' names that rhyme, right? But Brian and Ryan and myself sat down and we said, what is it that God is calling us to push into this year? And I, I just felt like we were just constantly coming back to this issue of communing with God, with, with really digging into this union with Christ and saying, what ramification does this have for my life here and now? And I'm excited to be able to start into this series this morning. See, this series is particularly pertinent because we live in this westernized context. I say westernized, we, we come from Europe. Europe has this uh, kind of uh, amalgam of, of thoughts and beliefs and, and worldview that we've kind of inherited. And right now, one, one 
aspect of our spiritual understanding would, would be that we have this high view of spirituality. We have Oprah Winfrey claiming to be kind of a, a, a moral, spiritual leader, right? But a low degree of accountability. Have you ever seen that? We have a high degree of spirituality, people who claim a, a connection with God, but we dare not tell anyone how to live their life. Is that true? You kind of mix it together with uh, this kind of post-enlightenment, kind of modern understanding of the world, or even post-modern understanding, and we just have this really interesting mixture culturally about spirituality. We highly value spirituality, but we really undervalue kind of muting our passions and our desires in the name of our spiritual life. In fact, any valid spiritual life in our culture's eyes is one that would kind of validate my own expressions, my own hungers, my own desires, my own appetites. It would thrust those things into the daylight and say these are accepted and to be practiced because I am a spiritual person. I am to be first and foremost true to myself. This is kind of this self-propagated spirituality that we see. And what I want to set in front of us this morning is not this kind of self-defined spirituality. What I want to set in front of us this morning is this nearness to God that is the Christian's greatest good. That's the way the psalmist concludes this psalm, isn't it? As for me, it's good to be near to God. How is it that Christians draw near to God? How should we anticipate this communion with God happening? If it's to be all defining, like the psalmist is going to say that it is, how do we do it? It's with that, we want to open up the scriptures this morning with a fresh heart and a fresh mind and, and see what God has to say to us. So I want to just invite us to the throne room this morning and ask God to say, open our eyes and our ears that we might, might see and hear from you here this morning. Let's pray again. Lord, we ask now that you would open our eyes Unstop our ears so that we may see you clearly, that we might hear you clearly. God, we recognize the need we have in this moment, that we are desperate to hear from you. And so, God, speak with abundant clarity to your people this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See, here's our big idea. Big idea is this. God is good particularly in his nearness to his people. God is good in his nearness. And we're going to see kind of four different phases through the psalm. First, we're going to start off with a conclusion that God is good to his people in verses 1 through 3. Then we're going to see that Asaph makes an observation that wicked people prosper in verses 4 through 15. And then the psalmist describes an adjustment in his own heart and his own soul in verses 16 through 22 that, that God judges the wicked and then finally, he's going to make a resolution that God's nearness is our good in verses 23 through 28. Read with me in Psalm 73, verses 1 through 3. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped when I was envious of the arrogant, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, the psalmist Asaph, he starts off with this conclusion. He's, he states that God is good to Israel. Now, he's not going to show us exactly the math of how he gets there quite yet. He's not going to show us exactly how he comes to this conclusion. In fact, what he's going to do in verses 2 and 3, he's going to state the opposite. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My, my steps had nearly slipped. I nearly lost faith. God is, is good, but I almost lost track of God's goodness. I almost lost it there. Second, he, he gives a summary statement. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What he's going to do is he's going to go on in verses 4 through 15, and he's going to describe exactly what that looks like. And he gives us this observation that wicked people prosper. Look at verse 4. For they, that's the wicked, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts throughout the earth. What exactly is Asaph saying here? What's he saying about these wicked people? Well, he describes how these wicked people seem to be prospering. And he, he really, in verses 3 to 5, describes the easiness of their life. Now, lo and behold, this week I became a Baptist preacher because I found four Ps to describe exactly what's going on here, right? Because apparently we can't get anyone to listen unless I alliterate everything. So there's these Ps that describe actually three Ps in this first part and then another three in the second with also an I, but that doesn't count. Verses 3 through 5, they had an easy life. They were prosperous in verse 3. He says, uh, or excuse me, verse 4, they have no pangs. Or excuse me, it was verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That term prosperity is just all-encompassing. It's not just economic like we tend to think of. It's, just, it's this word that's translated as peace or welfare or completeness. These wicked men have an ease of life that, they, that doesn't seem fit to characterize them, Right? In verse 4, he describes they're painless. Look at verse 4. They have no pangs until their death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. All of these people's lives are, are lived without pain, without difficulty. And those years are lived in abundance. That, that, that word fat, that carries a certain connotation in our, our culture, but this is a sign of blessing in this culture. If you were fat, you were uh, someone who was living in abundance, and so the psalmist is describing this wicked person who's living in this constant state of abundance. So they're prosperous, they're painless. In five, verse 5, they're peculiar, that is, they're strange. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. These difficulties that are common to humanity do not seem to touch these wicked people and so Asaph describes that these wicked men are living easy lives of abundance. What happens then in verse 6, he kind of turns a corner, and he uses that word therefore. 
Because they have this life of abundance, they, they live in this pattern of morality, which he wants to describe there. They have a hard heart, and he describes this in particular ways in verses uh, 6 and moving forward. He says that they're proud in verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Like they, they wear pride like it's a necklace. It's to be shown off to all the world. It's not just something hidden inside the deep recesses of their heart. This is something that they're showing forth. And one of the ways that it's particularly shown is that these are violent men, that they perpetrate acts of violence against one another to accumulate their wealth, to do what they want to do. So they're proud Verse 7, it's not a P, it's an I. They are idolatrous. Try coming up with a synonym for idolatrous with the letter P. It's impossible. I tried multiple times this week, just so you know. Verse 7 says, their eyes swell out through their fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. If, if you were to look in the books of Leviticus and number, that numbers, that, that term follies is constantly used to describe the worship of idols. And so the psalmist is kind of tapping into this language saying, these men are given over to idolatrous worship. They have allowed their hearts to chase after the idols of their culture. You might say, well, how does that fit? If they're proud, why are they turning to these gods? Well, what it is is they're really kind of seeking their own religion, their own spirituality on their terms. For an example, Baal was the god of fertility. And the idea was that if you sacrifice to Baal, Baal might win his ever-present war with the god Mot, who's the god of death and infertility. And so if you sacrificed to Baal, you helped him along so that you might also have fertility, you might also have blessing in your household. And so they're trying to control and manipulate their world by appeasing these gods, by helping these gods. And so this idolatrous heart is in keeping with the proud, self-existing heart that's described in this passage. Verse 8, they're powerful. He says, they scoff and speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. Their attitude is just one of just belligerence and scoffing against God. They are in a position to legitimately oppress others. That word oppression carries a certain weight these days, doesn't it? And we recognize that throughout the Old Testament, this term carries with it a specific weight that God is a God of justice, that God loves to see righteousness and justice accomplished in his world. And, and the psalmist is pointing out that these wicked men are oppressive men, that they threaten oppression. They use violence as a tool. So they're powerful proud. They're idolatrous. Finally, in verse 9, they are pompous. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Notice the completeness of what the psalmist is describing, that their mouths claim all that's on the earth and their tongue struts through the heavens. They encompass the entirety of God's creation with their arrogance. They fear neither man nor God himself. And the sum total of all of this is that these men were far from God. As the psalmist is later going to describe in verse 27, these are far from God. Notice that Asaph starts to do the math. Look at verse 10. 
Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. You see, God's people, Israel, are watching these wicked men prosper, and they're saying, does God really know? Is God present here? Does he see this wickedness going on? Does he see the prosperity of these wicked men? Can God really be alive and in our presence if these type of men prosper? And then he makes it personal in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said thus, I, or if I said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See, Asaph describes his difficulty. He's also, like the Israelites, looking at these wicked men saying, if these types of men prosper, what am I doing tending to the state of my heart? Isn't this vanity if God just blesses wicked men? See, it's true this morning, isn't it, that distance from God is disorienting. Distance from God is disorienting. Sin is itself disorienting. Have you ever had that, that experience where you're taking a trip and you, you get turned around in some neighborhood or, or something else and you're trying to find your bearings and, and you can't do it? Okay, full disclosure, embarrassing confession. This isn't in my notes, by the way. My first date, I, I drove to pick up the girl that I was going to take out, and I nearly drove to Pennsylvania because I got so lost. Just trying to lighten the mood here a little bit this morning. Just laugh at me. I'm an idiot. You get disoriented. You get turned around. You've lost your bearings. This is what it is to be in the fog of sin, to, to not know north from south or east from west, to not know up from down morally. You are just in the fog. You cannot find your way. See, sin is truly disorienting to the sin-soaked heart. And next week, when we look at Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to see that sin is just completely affecting us. It affects our minds. It affects our motives. It affects our morals. It affects all of us. See, i got more alliteration coming next week, too, so just hold on, right? It affects all of us. It, it, it shakes all of us so that we are just completely affected by it, that there's no part of us that remains true and right. We're, we're just completely lost in our sin. So that a, a man who's given to greed is completely affected by it. His mind is to, given to consider everything through the lens of money. His heart is motivated by dollars. His moral boundaries are confused by financial matters. The man who's given to lust has a mind that is soaked in sex. He has a, a moral quandary that is driven by sexuality. There's no clarity in his thinking because he's given over to those idols of the heart. And you and I are also affected by this, aren't we? Romans 3 says that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. We all have the disorienting effects of our sinfulness. Just stop and just think for a second. How do we describe all of the various opinions that we have around us? Isn't it the conglomeration of all of the sinful effects, the inclinations of our heart? One thing that I came out of the COVID-19 thing with is this, this realization that there are, are facts, 
that can be manipulated? Isn't that what we saw? Everybody has this narrative that they're bringing to the table and they're describing with their certain set of facts what's going on. And it just highlights that we are just a confused people because our hearts are drawn in 50 different directions by our sin. And before we get too depressed, Asaph is about to turn a corner. And what Asaph gets is he gets an education. But it's not a classroom education like you and I think about education. This is an education in the presence of God. That God's presence actually drives and directs Asaph. See, what happens is is an adjustment that God is going to judge the wicked is brought to, to Asaph's mind. In verse 16, read this with me. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a brute beast towards you. See, Asaph gets this education in God's presence. And what he describes in these uh, verses 16 and 17 is that he, he didn't know how to understand this, but then he enters into the sanctuary of God. He, he kind of comes into what we might describe as just this presence of God. We'll talk more about that and define that here in a few moments. But Asaph enters into the sanctuary of God, and it changes their minds. Specifically, Asaph tells us that he discerned these wicked men's end. What does he mean by that? He discerned these men's end. He tells us in verses 18 through 20 that God is going to judge the wicked. In verse 18, he highlights that their situation is precarious. That is, they are likely to stumble. They they will not stand. Either in this life or definitely in the next, these wicked men will come to ruin. Their situation is precarious. In verse 18, he says it. He says, truly, you have set them in slippery places. They have no true footing on which to stand. Secondly, their situation is Temporary. Look at verse 19. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terror, terrors. Terriers, that would be a different thing. Their situation is temporary. It's not permanent. These wicked men won't always prosper. And finally, in verse 20, that their situation is illusory. That is, it's, it's a dream. Verse 20, he says, Like a dream when one one awakes, oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It's not real, it's just a dream. When, When these wicked men wake up, they become aware of God's impending justice. And Asaph himself assesses that he himself was like an animal. Look at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. See, Asaph describes that he went from bitterness to beastly. That he he looked and he saw the 
the prosperity of wicked men and that it made him like the beast. What does that mean? When we were in Genesis 1, we saw that God created male and female in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, created us to be like him in some way. And when we uh, engage in patterns of sin, when we embrace this life outside of God and his goodness, we just kind of deny the imago dei that God has set inside of us. We deny that we are created in God's image. And Asaph is describing here that he was like a beast, that he was just driven by his, his lusts, by his desires. He was driven by those, those uh, just natural urges that went inside of him. He was no longer embracing God and therefore had forfeited the image of God. See, God brings equality. You see, you and I, we stand disoriented in our sin. All of us have felt the effects of our sin. We felt the weight that we saw in Psalm 32 that we don't confess sin. We feel God's hand press upon us. We feel the disorientation of our sin. We can't put all of the pieces together, as it were. It affects all of us. But now what we see is that God will bring justice to all sinners. God brings equality, that he sets the footing equally for all mankind through his justice doesn't he? Philippians 2 says, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no one that will escape their accountability to God. That all of us alike will come before God. We will need to recognize our sinfulness. We will need, hopefully, to find mercy through Christ. But this passage holds out hope for us, doesn't it? Asaph said that God is good to Israel. And in verses 23 through 28, we see that God's nearness is the definition of that goodness. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on the earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, Asaph's theology just blooms in God's presence, doesn't it? It's like his mind just opens up. He understands the goodness and character of God. And he sees God in this new light. Look at what he notes about God. First, he sees that God is present with him. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. The right hand was just this metaphor for power. And Asaph is saying, God is the power in my life. God is continually present with me. But it's not just that he's there, it's that he's, he's teaching. In verse 24, he's, he's present, but he's also what we would call a pedagogue. He's a teacher. You guide me with your counsel. He's not just present, he's active. Have you considered this, that God's not just present with us right now? He's actually, if you have the Spirit residing in you, poking and prodding you to righteousness. He's teaching you and instructing you in the way of righteousness. 
And so he's present with us. He's pedagogue. He's portion. In verse 25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on the earth that I desire. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, well, Asaph was formerly just jealous of the prosperity of wicked men because they had all of this stuff, all of the fatness, all of the blessing, all of the everything. He looks now and he says, no, God is my portion. I don't need anything on earth because my God is in heaven. And finally, what he highlights in in verses 27 and 28 is that God is his protection. Look at verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. See, we get a great deal of clarity here, don't we? Those who are far from God will receive judgment. But as Asaph records for us in verse 28, that those who are near to God receive the blessing of his nearness. leads us back to our original thought that God's nearness to us is our good. Let's just talk about this concept of nearness for a second, right? We know that God is everywhere, isn't he? Like we learn that like in Sunday school when you're like five. God is everywhere. He knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. Wait. No, Psalm 139 says it with clarity. If I I go to the far side of the sea, you're there. If I go down to the depths, to the grave, you're there. The psalmist is affirming that God's presence is everywhere. And because his presence is everywhere, he sees everything. He knows everything. He moves everything. He is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. Omnipotent, if you want to say it the correct way. See, when we're speaking of God's nearness, we're not talking about physical proximity because God's near to everyone. Instead, consider the two opposite poles given in the psalm. There are those who reject the counsel of God. They do as they please. They live independently of God, and they're described as what? As far from God. There are those who tend to their heart. Pursue righteousness. Come into God's presence. And they are described as near to God. Such that nothing in heaven or on earth could compare to this nearness for Asaph. See, there's this pattern through history. And I just want to pull this out this morning that we recognize it. That God has continually, since the fall of mankind, moved closer and closer in proximity to mankind. If we were to go back to the book of Genesis this morning, we find that Abraham, uh, God kind of shows up as he wills, right? So we looked at last week at Genesis 18.1, and it says God appeared to Abraham. So God appears as he wills. Whenever he decides to show up, that's when he shows up. 
Now, it kind of progresses a little bit in the book of Exodus because the presence of God goes with Israel in the pillar of fire. And then eventually when they build the tabernacle, the presence of God fills the tabernacle so that God is consistently present with them. But it's still limited to the regular Israelite because they need this guy named a high priest to go and intervene for them. So there's one guy who interfaces with God, and he's got this support staff known as priests, but there's one guy who comes before God as high priest. Moses also came before God, but a little bit different scenario there. You fast forward all the way to the New Testament, and Jesus himself, God comes and he dwells among us, right? That's why they call him Emmanuel. God is with us in our midst, that God himself is dwelling, not just with one person temporarily for a little bit of time through great loss of life and blood, Now Jesus is in our midst, and he gives himself fully at the cross so that what? So that the Holy Spirit can come and indwell believers personally so that you and I, as Peter says, become partakers of the divine nature, that we actually uh, know God personally. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that we go with confidence behind uh, the holy of holies, behind the curtain, behind the veil, through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, we've moved from this distant relationship that was kind of mediated through priests, through this sacrificial system, to right now, if you are a believer in Jesus that this temple curtain is torn, that sinners like you and I then are symbolically ushered into the presence of God because of the work of the priest. Jesus has experienced abandonment so that we might experience acceptance and renewal. You're saying, so what? So what? What's it matter that now I have nearness to God? Well, it's upon us this morning and this summer as we talk about communion to God to press in, to draw near, 
See, God has granted us the fullness of access to his throne through the shed blood of Jesus so that there is no sin that keeps us from his, his presence. There's no distance between us and God. You now have full, unfettered access to the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now it's upon us to draw near. You might want to take a moment just to think through what aspects keep us from communion with God. What are the parts that keep us from actually pressing into communing with the triune God? And I've just highlighted a few things as I was thinking through it. Um, first, a devotion to our sin. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, when we were in Ephesians 4 last year, he told, told us that we shouldn't grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, we, we do grieve the Holy Spirit when we actively pursue our sin. We should find it no coincidence that our communion with God is broken by our patterns of devotion to our sinfulness. We might find a lack of discipline to be a, a hindrance to our communion with God. While our communion with Christ is completely of grace, our communion with God is best understood as the give and take of relationships, kind of like uh, that John Piper quote pointed out to us. We receive the words of God and then we respond to him in appropriate ways, in thanksgiving and in prayer and in study and all of these ways, and yet our lack of discipline can be a hindrance to our true cultivating of communion with God. A lot of times we as Christians, we tend to think about like... Uh, study times and prayer as kind of this checklist thing that we do. That's what righteous Christians do, right? Maybe we need to start thinking of it as, as this relationship with God, this communion with God that is fostered in fellowship. That when I come to the word, I hear from God. When I go to him in prayer, I speak my concerns to God. That there's a regularity of relationship that is bound up in those disciplines. Thirdly, there's a lack of time and space. Some of us, we don't experience true communion with God because we don't make time for experiencing true communion with God. I was reading a, a book by D.A. Carson, and he said this. He said, uh, a lot of times we don't pray just because we don't make room to pray. Some of us, our schedules are so filled with, with this and that and the other, and I don't want to name anything specific because I'm just recognizing that we can fill ourselves with our schedules with all kinds of good things. But if they hinder our communion with God, it's not a good thing anymore, is it? We recognize that we need to clear out our schedules, clear out space where we have devoted time where we can meet and hear and pray to our God. This is the beauty of what God has given us in Christ. Finally, there, there might be a misunderstanding of how exactly we commune with God. We might think to ourselves that it's by the strength of our own efforts that we, we commune with the Most High, that we, we somehow just, uh, you know, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, that there's no element of grace in it. It's just a, mat, a matter of discipline and holiness. Uh, and hopefully you didn't hear those first two objections in that light. We, we, we have a mixture of God's grace and our effort and our communion with God, that God is gracious to meet with us still. But the end of this 
chapter says something significant to us, doesn't it? Verse 28 says, For me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. What is the point of this nearness of God? So we can speak and verbalize the goodness of God that we commune with. I remember when I was a kid, um, I became a Christian when I was 10. And um, I decided that it would be a good thing for me to share my faith with other people. That was a, that was a very good impulse. Um, but I remember specifically trying to share my faith with a friend and it going horribly wrong. I mean, it just went really badly in a lot of ways. And looking back on that now, I recognize that there wasn't much communion with God. And therefore, being an advocate, a, a, you know, as 2 Corinthians 5 would describe us, a, an ambassador, meant that I needed to spend time in God's presence, that I needed to soak in the blessing of who God was to me in Christ so that I could be an adequate representation of who he was. Trying to represent God without having communion with God always leads to something that's just kind of askew. And so this morning, what we recognize is that God has, has brought us into his presence to enjoy his nearness, to find blessing in his goodness. And that happens specifically through Christ. I want to pray this morning. I want to pray that God uses our time this summer uh, to really shape and form our minds, shape and form my mind about how we talk and think about communion with God. And I hope that, that we might end this summer and say, God is so good to us to grant us access, to commune with us, to fellowship with us. Let's pray to that end this morning. Lord, we, we pray now that you would highlight your goodness to us as we talk about communing with you. And we pray exactly that. It wouldn't just be talk. But Lord, that you would teach us and train us to value your presence. Not just your physical proximity close to us, but our right, right relationship with you that we receive from you and return to you in faith. God, train our hearts and our minds to think about what it means to commune with you and find sweetness and goodness in your presence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.